0: Now as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week, we read the story of the Good Samaritan, and I told you that we need to get in the ditch. We read Jesus' words that said, the neighbor is the one who showed mercy. Now go and do likewise. Go and do. I got an email from one of you this week that said, I found your sermon last week about the Good Samaritan moving, but frustrating. I hear the call to go and do, but I don't even know where to begin. Someone else confessed to me, I've always felt guilty that I'm not doing enough. And another said, I'm I'm angry about what's going on in the world, but I feel powerless and confused. What am I supposed to do? These are all questions that I believe Martha would be asking too. If you're familiar with this story from Luke, then you know that Martha is one of those people we like to call a doer. Now just to get it out there, this story about Mary and Martha has always irritated me. Because over the years it's been used in some pretty blanket ways to sort people, women in particular, into two groups. Such as, are you a Mary or a Martha? Do you like Bible study or do you like soup kitchens? Would you rather read or cook? Do you think first or act first? Do you try to simplify things or do you just complicate everything? Are you a quiet scholar or a bossy busybody? There's not much room in those dichotomies, is there? You're either one or the other, always at odds, and always forced to choose which. But This is such an unhealthy way to divvy up people, especially if we praise the virtues of Mary while expecting the work ethic of Martha. The truth is, we're not just one or the other. Mary and Martha are sisters. And we can't understand either one of them if we don't remember that they're related. And so maybe if we see both of them together residing in us, maybe that might change the way we look at this passage. The story begins with Martha inviting Jesus over to her house. But you see, Jesus didn't travel alone, no. he. He he had an entourage with him everywhere he went. And to extend hospitality to to that many people takes a lot of work. So it makes sense that Martha would get overwhelmed by her tasks. Now traditionally we interpret these tasks to mean preparing a meal or cleaning the house. But notice there's no talk of dinner or tidying up. And what's stunning here is this Greek word that's translated task is diakonia. And diakonia doesn't really mean tasks. Diakonia means service. And sure, it can can mean service in preparation of a meal. But almost every time it's used in scripture, it means the service of ministry. Diakonia is the the word from which we get deacon. So Martha's not simply entertaining guests. She's doing what the church is supposed to do. Preparing love thy neighbor meals. Organizing food in the blessing boxes. Making sure the supplies are ready for VBS. Checking the finances, setting out the bulletins, arranging the flowers. Martha wasn't simply distracted by cleaning the kitchen or fixing a meal. No, it was the all-important work of ministry that had Martha worried and distracted. Except this wasn't going as Martha had planned. She is trying to be responsible. She's the one doing what's expected of her. She's trying to be a good servant of the Lord but it's hard to serve Jesus and fight with your sister or brother at the same time. Finally, she can't stand it anymore, so she she bursts into the living room and says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Well, tell her then to help me. What an amazing sentence that is. Do you notice the absolute lack of direct communication, I mean, this is triangulation at its finest. (laughs) Really, top notch. Because as Reverend Anna Carter Florence says, nothing makes you revert to childhood behavior. Like, I mean, kids in the backseat behavior, like being mad at your sibling. I mean, you can almost hear six-year-old Martha and four-year-old Mary after three hours in the car. Mom, she's touching me. Mom, tell her to stop looking at me. We really know how to regress with family, don't we? I don't think we do it deliberately. It it just happens. And then the next reflexive move is to try to get Jesus on your side, because you always want that endorsement. Lord, don't you care? Martha says. First of all, how are you going to accuse Jesus of not caring? Jesus. I mean, caring is like Jesus's whole thing. How could you accuse him of that? You want to know where my heart accuses God of not caring? It's in traffic. You know that part on 280 East toward Silicaga? Right before you get to Grandview? there's that right lane that's always got a lot less traffic than the other lanes? And that's because it's a turning lane? And you know it's a turning lane because that lane is clearly marked as a turning lane for like half a mile? And you know how lots of drivers speed down that right turning lane, and then at the last second they cut in front of the first car in line and then disappear onto 280? Skipping the line that the rest of us are waiting in like decent, responsible citizens. Every time I'm on that road when that happens, I want to scream, Lord, don't you care? It's a question. That's an accusation. Here you are trying to do the right thing, but it's hard to focus on what Jesus wants you to do and you're so mad about what he or she hasn't done. You tend to say outrageous things like, Lord, if you love me, then tell her to listen to me and not you. If you care, you'll you'll see the things my way, the way it's supposed to be. He doesn't seem to care. Even though you know Martha is doing her level best to let him know that she's getting just a little annoyed. This is how I do it in my household with my family. When I want people to know that I think I'm doing all the work by myself, I clean faster than I have to, and my gestures are a little bit harsher than they're supposed to be, and and I... Every few seconds. And if anybody asks, is everything okay? Yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. Everything's fine. It makes me wonder, Martha was standing on the edge of burnout. She'd been going and going and going and doing and doing and doing, but the fact remained that there was just more and more to be done. And no matter how many buddy bags she packed or how many committee meetings she attended, she still felt like she was swimming in a sea of chaos. She regularly turned on the news or looked at her social media feed and only to discover tragedy after tragedy continuing to unfold. A war in Ukraine, the rise in COVID cases in this never ending pandemic, the sickness and death of those that she loved. It just never stopped. So perhaps one reason Martha got angry with Jesus and Mary is because she felt her ministry work was not bearing the kind of fruit she longed for. She was not getting the results she desired. The more she did, the more she felt like there was to do. I imagine some of us understand Martha. Jesus understood Martha. Look at his reply. Martha, Martha. I love that. You remember when Your parents would say your name twice. Now, if they said your full name, David Joseph Seaman, get in here, you know you're in trouble. But if they said your name twice, David, David, well, that just means you're confused. Martha, Martha, you can hear the love and concern exude from the repetition of that name. And not only does he call her by name, but names her feelings, too. Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There's need of only one thing. And Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Worried and distracted. Did you hear those words? Notice, this isn't about personality. He's not going after busy Martha. He's not going after hard-working Martha, but worried and distracted Martha. Jesus isn't judging Martha's work ethic. Remember, just before this, he told that parable of the Good Samaritan where he criticizes the priests and Levites who rush past the man in need in order to get to worship, and praises the Samaritan who does the hard work of caring for the man. No, Jesus is not criticizing her work, he's showing Martha that she has lost the purpose for her work. Tom Long tells a story about an advisory group he was on whose job it was to listen to the reports from college chaplains and to offer them support and counsel. At one meeting, an older member of that advisory group asked the chaplains, what are the university students like morally these days? After a minute, one answered, well, I think you'd be basically pleased. The students are pretty ambitious about their careers, but that's not all they are. A lot of them tutor after school, some work in a night shelter and in a soup kitchen. She continued citing the different activities in which students were engaged, doing the important work of ministry. But as she talked, the Jewish chaplain began to smile. And finally, it it became distracting. Am I saying something funny? She asked. No, 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 I'm sorry, he replied. I was just sitting here thinking, you're saying that the university students are good people, and they are, and you're saying that they're involved in good social causes, and you're right. But what I was thinking is the one thing they lack is a vision of salvation. At this point, everyone in the group looked at the Jewish chaplain. No, no, it's true, he said. If you don't have some vision of what God is doing to repair the whole creation, you can't get up every day and work in a soup kitchen. It finally beats you down. If you don't have some vision of what God is doing, it finally beats you down. I'm told that in the hospice in Calcutta where Mother Teresa knelt by a bathtub to wash someone fresh off the streets, there was a sign above the door that reads, this is my body. What a good reminder. If you don't have some vision of what God is doing to repair the whole creation, if you've lost sight that you are living out the good news, then you're missing the point. It reminds me of another sibling rivalry in scripture. We talked about it a few weeks ago, the prodigal son and his older brother. The older brother with his impeccable work ethic could not believe it when his younger brother came back home after squandering his inheritance only to be thrown a party. It's not his turn yet. All these years I've been working like a slave for you, yet you have not thrown me so much as a pizza party to celebrate. Don't you care, Lord? that I'm left to do all the work by myself? Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. I wish I could remember what that one thing is, don't you? God knows I need it. Maybe you do too. God knows I want to serve Jesus, but there's so much stuff that gets in the way, inside worries and outside distractions. Need of only one thing? Life has so many needs to so many things, doesn't it? There's the needs at home to people who are counting on us. There's needs at work at church, at the PTA, and coaching soccer. There's the needs of friends, of little children, of aging parents. There's the needs of our nation and the needs of our world. And sometimes it seems like we keep accumulating more and more needs, more and more responsibilities, and the pieces of the pie are getting smaller and smaller, giving us less and less time for all of them. For long, we feel like We're not doing a very good job at anything, any of those particular needs. And we begin to burn out. And that's when Jesus comes, ever so tenderly, and says, Martha, Martha, there's need of only one thing. And not only does he say one thing, but one part of one thing, the better part. That's what Mary has chosen. I wonder what that means, the better part. Again, our translation is not as helpful as it could be. It says that Mary chose to listen to what Jesus was saying. As if that could mean he's simply sharing a story or telling about his day. But actually in Greek, it says that Mary was listening to the word of Jesus, the Logos, the gospel message that Jesus both embodied and proclaimed. The better part that she was choosing was to center herself in God's word. Our sacred story, it's a simple story, really. Colossians said it beautifully, but because I too often forget Here it is again, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word set the universe into motion through breath and sound and self-giving. The Word brought all things into existence, light, and there was light, love, and there was love. In the image of that Word, we were created, breathing eternal love In the human heart. That same word was spoken through prophets and poets reminding us that we are beloved, but we tended to drown it out with our own words. Words we think that will save us. Words of domination, violence, greed, and power. And so again this word spoke through sound and self-giving, only this time the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The living word, whom we call Jesus, kissed lepers and befriended prostitutes and baffled authority. The word who walked among us as love, eating with all the wrong people, blessing those who cursed him, and teaching us that he would be with us. And on the night before he died, he held up bread and told us to do the same thing. And he promised to always be with us, that forgiveness is real, that we are God's beloved, no matter what we do or what we fail to do. We are all God's beloved. And from that tree on which Jesus hung, he showed us just how far that word of love would go to death and back, to redeem all of creation. Apparently, Mary decided that before she could go and do the work she was called to do, before she could reimagine what could be in her world, before any of that, she had to first ground herself again and again in Jesus' word, the Living Word. She knew that she needed to listen again and again because too often we give this word away in exchange for other words. Words telling us to prove you're beloved, prove you're worthy, prove you have any contribution to make, do something relevant. Before Mary could do anything. She first had to sit at Jesus' feet and be reminded of a love that was and is and always will be, a love that no one can take away. Mary knew that if she did not have that kind of spiritual grounding work on a regular, habitual basis, she didn't pray, read scripture, experience Sabbath, engage in worship, and she might begin to think that eventually she would get caught up in all the uproar of all there was to do, becoming worried and distracted, exhausted and resentful. That's what happened to Martha. She somehow lost herself. She lost her, her eye, her subjectivity. She can't speak directly directly. She can't serve directly. She can't remember the one thing that she needs. So what Jesus does here is he gives it back to her. He gives her back her eye. Jesus repeats her name, Martha, Martha, as if to wake her up and to remind her that she's not Mary, she's Martha, God's beloved child. And it's that love the love of God that no one can take away from you. No one. And the only way to be convinced of that is to begin each day at his feet, listening to his word. Indeed, friends, this is why our staff here at IPC has chosen to prioritize Sabbath in this season of our life together. One of the most important first things we do as a church is to offer and cultivate the holy space to hear that voice, to help each other through worship and study, through music and prayers, hopefully even through a sermon every once in a while, to catch a glimpse of what God is doing to repair the whole of creation. Does God really give us permission to be gentle with ourselves? To take time for sitting in God's Word, time for Sabbath, time for solitude, time for learning, time for quiet prayer, time to sit and do nothing helpful, time to simply exist in the loving presence of God? Isn't that just a cop-out? An excuse to do nothing in a world full of injustice and need? But what if it's not a cop out? Suppose we trust that God really wants us to choose this better part. What if Jesus is pulling for the side of us that sits in God's Word, that rests in our identity as beloved children, one that we don't have to prove? If we could all do that, I bet we could serve Jesus in ways that we haven't even imagined yet. When we begin to choose the better part that Jesus offers, we will begin to see not just another activity in the church, but an opportunity to see the face of Christ in each other. We'll see not just another dirty body in Calcutta, but the body of Christ given for us. We'll see ways of being that will make love more real to our siblings in Christ because we're grounded in our own belovedness. Perhaps if we can trust that God wants this better part for all of us, then when we do call out to God, we'll hear hear exactly what we need to hear. Martha, Martha. David, David your name, your pain, fully known and understood by God. And then perhaps we'll hear God's invitation to sit and listen to God's story, a story that grounds us in the one thing that is needed, that which will never, ever be taken away from us. Amen.